2: Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
3: I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining us. At least eight people died in mass shootings across America just last weekend alone, including in Brooklyn, New York, and Gilroy, California. But nearly 50 people were also injured in those shootings, just a few of the tens of thousands who were wounded by guns every year. The recovery can take a while. Former Red Sox star David Ortiz was just released from Massachusetts General Hospital seven weeks after he was shot in the Dominican Republic. Ortiz underwent three surgeries after suffering damage to multiple organs from an attack that authorities are still investigating. As WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports, many survivors of gun violence carry wounds, both physical and emotional, for the rest of their lives. And a warning here to our listeners, this story includes some descriptions of gun violence that some people might find disturbing. What are we looking
2: at?
0: Oh, so this is cabbage, and then there's beets and shallots, and that's fennel.
4: Clay Lasher Summers runs a small farm in Westmoreland in southwestern New Hampshire. On this day, the weather is hot and the rolling hills are soft and green. It's a peaceful corner of the world where Clay, who's 62, has spent much of her life.
0: This land is the land that I used to play on when I was a kid. It was my only safe spot. I lived in this town, I think, for two years before I got shot.
4: That happened in 1970 when Clay was 13. She lived here with her brother, mother, and her stepfather, who was physically abusive, especially when he drank.
0: He would hold the house hostage, you know, proceed to beat my mother, proceed to beat my brother, and then beat me and take the gun and put it against my neck and hold me up against the wall. He did
4: that with his .30-06, a powerful hunting rifle that can take down a moose. Sometimes he'd point the gun at her when it was unloaded and pull the trigger. But one night when he was drunk and in a rage, he loaded the gun.
0: My mother came out of her bedroom and she said... You better watch out, because I think he's going to really shoot you tonight. And then she went and hid in my bedroom closet. I went to close the door, and my stepfather um, shot me. He shot through the door? Well, the door wasn't closed, but yeah, it hit the door first. I remember my body going way up in the air and bouncing from the shock. Like, it's like slow motion. You, You bounce up, your body turns around.
4: Her brother ran to the neighbors. The police came. Then an ambulance, which rushed 13-year-old Clay to the hospital. Through it all, she never lost consciousness.
0: I think there's something that happens to you when you're shot. You instinctively know. I kept telling myself that if I lost consciousness, I would die. So I didn't.
4: The bullet hit Clay in her side, tore through a kidney, just missed her spine, and exited through her back. She was partially paralyzed for six months and underwent multiple surgeries. She says 50 years later, the wound is still there.
0: So I have one kidney that's full of shrapnel and barely works. Even today, uh, lead comes out of my body, so that's like a constant reminder. Even today? It still comes out.
4: Clay says that lead and her scars show how much trauma one bullet can inflict on a body. And while stories of gun violence in America usually focus on the high number of gun deaths, Clay's story is a reminder that many more people are living with gunshot wounds.
5: For every gun death, there's roughly two to three times more injuries.
4: This is John Rosenthal, the founder of Stop Handgun Violence. It's difficult to nail down precisely how many Americans are shot and survive each year. But here's what we know from a number of studies, including the Gun Violence Archive. Last year, close to 40,000 Americans were killed by guns, most by suicides. If you exclude the suicides, there were about 15,000 gun deaths and about twice as many gun injuries, many of them severe. Again, John Rosenthal.
5: An AR-15 assault rifle in a 223 round is designed to tumble and create maximum soft tissue damage. The entry wound from an AR-15 is about a half inch in diameter. The exit wound is like eight to 10 inches in diameter.
6: So bullets leave holes.
4: Boston University School of Public Health took part in a multi-decade study of firearm injuries. It found that the severity of gun wounds has increased significantly in recent years, which correlates with the growing lethality of modern weapons. Sandro Galea is dean at the school, who co-authored the study. He says the data show that 30 percent of shooting victims die. About 30 percent are treated in an ER and are released. Galea says the rest, roughly 40 percent, require complicated treatments and prolonged hospitalization. Those who live, the bullet has still
3: gone through the body and caused injury to the intestines or to the liver or to the spleen or to any number of blood vessels. And that is an extraordinary amount of damage to the human body.
4: Galea says this comes with a huge cost to the victims and to society. He says more study is needed, but that estimates put the price tag of firearm injuries in the billions of dollars a year, on par with the cost of obesity in America. And he says there's another important cost to consider.
7: Firearm injury is an extremely traumatic event.
4: Galea says it's well known that after traumatic events, people are more likely to suffer from mental illness, including post traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. But he says again, more study is needed to accurately assess the psychological toll of firearm injuries. You do not ever
0: get rid of PTSD, you don't ever.
4: In many ways, Clay Lasher Summers has moved on with her life. She's had children, she runs a farm, and advocates for victims of gun violence. But she struggles with depression and says the trauma of being shot never goes away. She learned that years ago when her baby daughter contracted Lyme disease.
0: It reawakened all of the PTSD I had. Like, would she die? Was she going to die? Could I ever take my eyes off her? You know all of that stuff of extreme fear of losing her that's when i realized again you know how bad it could be
4: her daughter recovered and clay says a therapist eventually helped her with her ptsd
0: and he taught me that being a body that has sustained that amount of trauma and injury you have to learn to walk beside your ptsd that's the goal. I don't know anyone who has gotten over it, but you learn to walk beside it. That is the best I can do.
4: When you say it, you mean?
0: The, the shot, the gunshot wound.
4: That gunshot wound has caused Clay Lasher Summers a half century of pain. But it's also inspired her to help others like her. She hopes to set up a nonprofit and transform her farm into a refuge where victims of gun violence can come and recover. Given what we know about their numbers, she'll have plenty of takers. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Anthony Brooks.
3: In Hartford, the Connecticut State's attorney is investigating the fatal police shooting of Alfonso Zaporta after an altercation with officers. The ACLU and the city's mayor both called for the release of the body camera videos. It was the first time a police shooting had been captured under Hartford's new body cam program. From the reporting collaborative Guns in America, Ryan Lindsay reports that many New England cities are now part of this transparency trend.
8: Officer Noelia Resto has been on the job as a Hartford police officer for 18 years. Hartford has one of the largest police departments in Connecticut. In February, she got her body camera as a part of the department's pilot program.
9: The amount of time that I'm using it now uh, is more um, like sacred nature. It's more like, all right, I'm turning my lights on, I'm turning this on, or I'm calling it in, I'm turning it, in. so it's part of my process or how I approach the
8: call. Resto uses her device as much as she can, maximizing its features. She programmed her camera to vibrate when it's recording and uses a cell phone app to categorize each video by the type of interaction she has with people, like an arrest or traffic stop. When you turn it on, it beeps. When you start recording, it makes this sound. And when you turn it off, it makes this noise. Just over an hour away, along the coast, the Milford Police Department has been using body cameras for more than five years, before the protests and national conversation around the death of 18-year-old Mike Brown, who was shot by a police officer in Missouri. Here's Milford Chief Keith Mello.
3: When there's an overreaction, or there's a mistake, or there's simply bad behavior on the part of law enforcement, video evidence helps determine that as well.
8: Mello is of the mindset that body cameras are not only tools to protect police but to hold them accountable as well. It's important for
3: uh, that officer uh, to either be held accountable, uh, to be corrected and or both, Uh, but it's also important for the credibility uh, of that agency
10: um, and and the community.
8: More than 60 percent of Connecticut's body cameras come from a company called Axon. It's one of the largest body camera suppliers in the country. Jason Hartford, Axon's Vice President of Connected Devices, says many police departments are embracing body cams.
4: The body-worn camera evidence started to level the playing field, started to show how police officers were working with the public, how the public was responding.
8: In 2018, Axon launched its ethics board. The company said it wanted to have, quote, an independent voice to think about ethical, privacy, and security aspects partly because the people who make the technology aren't asked to think about the impacts it has on communities. Barry Friedman is director of the NYU Policing Project and a member of Axon's Ethics Board. He's concerned about police departments that don't have policies for when body cam footage gets released and who's able to see it.
6: There are many jurisdictions in which the policies regarding body cameras don't allow for or don't provide for disclosure of the footage at times when it might be appropriate for accountability. But at the same time, that footage is being used to prosecute criminal offenses.
8: Anecdotally, police will tell you that body cams help decrease use of force incidents and improve civilian interactions. But researchers at George Mason found that statistically there haven't been significant changes. And then there's skepticism from the media.
4: Are body cams the answer to police misconduct? Body-mounted
8: video cameras. Every single officer is now outfitted with a body cam. But will it keep cops in check? Even along law enforcement, there's tension. Federal agents don't wear body cams. And on joint investigations, local officers are not allowed to wear theirs. That's led some local departments to pull their officers off joint investigations. Chief Art Acevedo is the Houston Police Chief and President of the Major Cities Chiefs Association. He says the federal government can't say, do as we say, not as we do.
4: We need our federal partners to come into the 21st century and, uh, and agree that uh, that transparency builds trust, and trust is a win for everybody.
8: Acevedo says they've been engaged in conversations with the Department of Justice about this tension for more than a year. Meanwhile, some departments have had their officers kicked off investigations with federal law enforcement.
11: Ultimately, if uh, DOJ doesn't come up with an agreement, uh, we'll probably end
4: up calling for the president to issue an executive order. And- uh, make them do the right thing.
8: While Acevedo is optimistic about the conversations with the DOJ, without a solution, he predicts that more departments will choose their body cams over working with the feds. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Ryan Lindsay.
3: Police departments have different methods of tracking the activity of criminal gangs, but these methods aren't always so transparent. The American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts sued Boston police last year to gain access to the department's gang assessment database. The lawsuit was prompted by concerns over how allegations of gang affiliation are used in immigration court proceedings. We reported on one of these stories previously on Next. Now, civil liberties advocates and those who study policing say they have some concerns about the accuracy of this database and the impact it could have on individuals wrongly identified as a gang member. WBUR's Shannon Dooling reviewed these documents, which provide for the first time a look at how gang members are tracked in the city, and she joins us now. So Boston police released a a trove of documents as a result of this suit by the ACLU seeking access. Shannon, what exactly stands out
11: in all these records? Well, I mean, this is really the first glimpse into this database. So really, everything is kind of a revelation. Uh, But there are some basics according to the BPD's own data analysis. So there are 160 documented gangs in Boston. Uh, The names of those gangs weren't provided by BPD. 100 of those are, quote, active gangs, with about 30 gangs, quote, actively driving violence. There are about 5,300 total individuals in the gang database, and of those, around 2,800 are, quote, active gang members. Uh, So a little bit of math there, the remaining 2,500 people are classified as either inactive deceased or long-term incarcerated. Well, wow, so that's
3: a lot of people. How exactly does someone get into this gang database in the first place?
11: Right, so BPD uses what's known as a point system to sort of track alleged gang behavior. So for example, if someone self-admits to being in a gang, that's eight points. If someone is observed wearing supposed gang paraphernalia, like a certain brand of a hat or shoes, that can carry four points. Even becoming a victim or a target of gang violence can get you anywhere from three to eight points. So once an individual racks up more than ten points, uh, that person is considered a gang member. Uh, If a person accrues six to ten points, they're considered what's called a gang associate.
3: So hold it, being a target of gang violence can get you points in the system?
11: That's right. The the thought being that it it sort of implies some kind of involvement or retaliatory uh, action being taken by a gang. Wow.
3: So, So do you have any sense how this compares to other cities that maintain similar databases of gang activity?
11: Yeah, well, it's difficult to make an apples-to-apples comparison just because access to these databases is really hard to come by. But on that figure that cites 160 documented gangs in the city of Boston, I did speak to an outside expert. Uh, His name is Thomas Nolan. Nolan was actually a lieutenant with the Boston Police Department. He worked as a supervisor of the Boston Police Gang Task Force. He says he's surprised and concerned by that number.
6: I look at the Criteria They use to put people into the gang assessment database and then draw these conclusions about having 160 different uh, separate different gangs in the city. That's, an, that's a lot of gangs for a city the size of, of Boston.
11: So for comparison's sake, John, a recent report by the Chicago Crime Commission put the number of active street gangs in that city at 59. And we should keep in mind Chicago's population is four times that of Boston.
3: So you've reported that the ACLU wanted demographic information of the people listed in this database um, have they gotten that information? I mean, what do we know
11: about the the racial or gender breakdown of the people who are in the database right now? Well, this is interesting, John. Uh, the BPD does not track race or gender of the people the department lists in its gang database. So instead, what the department did was cross-reference criminal records of the names listed in the database to find out what the race and gender were uh, listed at the time of an arrest. So 93% of the people in the gang database have a prior Boston arrest. That's according to the BPD's own analysis. For the remaining 7%, though, the department wasn't able to tell the ACLU what the race or gender is of people in their own gang database. Uh, Adriana Lafay is a staff attorney with the ACLU. She said these numbers confirm what the organization has suspected, and that's that the gang database disproportionately includes men of color.
9: What we see is a pattern of youth being surveilled inside their schools and outside their schools in their neighborhoods and being labeled as gang members Often simply because of the people they're being seen with
2: and sometimes the clothing that they wear.
11: Lafay says the ACLU is still waiting for additional documents and the group still has a lot of questions around how information gets into the database and then how it's shared uh, among local, state and even federal authorities once it's in there.
3: We'll check back with you for more updates. Shannon Dooling covers immigration and other issues for the New England News Collaborative. She's based at WBUR in Boston. Shannon, thanks again for joining us. I appreciate it.
11: You're welcome. Thank you, John.
3: Coming up, workers who are struggling to find housing do the Nantucket Shuffle. But first, fishermen are raising safety concerns over wind power plans. It's next.
2: Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York.
3: Vineyard Wind, the first large-scale commercial wind farm in the U.S., is on hold as federal regulators argue over the impact it will have on commercial fishing in New England. A Reuters report this week showed that NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and the National Marine Fisheries Service refused to sign off on the project's design. Nadine Sabai of the Publix Radio has been talking to fishermen about this project. They say as designed, the wind farm could make one of the country's most dangerous jobs even more dangerous.
9: On most days, Daniel Farnham is on the dock of his father's fishing boat. Working alongside his crew that catches squid, whiting, and porgy off the coast of New Bedford, but on this day the hundred-foot boat is out of the water. Farnham is wearing a hard hat, protective glasses, and a safety jacket, conducting the boat's biennial maintenance check.
10: I was needle gunning and looking for that rot. That's what they're doing now. Cause they got pneumatic needle guns working on uh, chipping paint, rust, and looking for any kind of rot. And then we'll uh, get our first coat of paint on there. Hopefully tomorrow.
9: Barnham is at a metal recycling plant patching up the boat. It's taken a beating from harsh waves and salt water. He's been working on this vessel for over four years and says nature's elements aren't kind to the boat or fishermen.
10: My first real commercial trip was uh, hurricane force winds and 20-foot waves at the end of it. Uh, And we just kept working until the end, filled up the boat and then worked our way in. But those are the conditions we operate in, um, you know, because these boats are meant to go out and work.
9: Fishing is one of the most dangerous jobs in the country.
10: It's like trying to drive around in a car with no brakes on a road that can be moving in any direction, you know, uh, like a road made out of treadmills, basically, and then having obstacles thrown in your way continuously.
9: Farnham says offshore wind farms will make it worse. That's because fishermen argue the turbines aren't spaced far enough apart to allow vessels to safely navigate through them. The plan is to install 84 massive turbines in a grid-like pattern about three-quarters to a nautical mile apart. Farnham says mobile gear vessels like his that have massive nets trawling behind them will make it even harder to navigate.
10: The currents and the tide just take you in whatever direction they're going. And so that's when you could wind wind up having a collision or an elision with uh, one of the turbines or another vessel within the array because everyone's maneuverability is a lot more limited.
9: Until now, safety has not been a major point at the negotiating table with Vineyard Wind. But as the offshore wind farm gets closer to becoming a reality, fishermen's voices are getting louder. Farnham is part of a fisheries working group. He's hoping that safety will be addressed before the project is a done deal. Fishermen in the group want the turbines to be spaced farther apart, or even closer together so the wind farm takes up less space and the boats can just navigate around them. If that doesn't work, fishermen want to be compensated more for potential safety losses. Environmental economist Tom Sproul says there are reasons to be concerned about safety. Sproul evaluates risk, and his work has recently focused on the fishing industry. He projects offshore wind developments will contribute to maritime accidents that could cost millions of dollars in damage. In May, Sproul wrote a letter to Massachusetts coastal zone management officials He provided them with some rough economic calculations about the number of accidents they could expect once the wind farm is in operation.
1: On average, there will be three accidents over 30 years for the Massachusetts fishermen and about five for Rhode Island fishermen. We're talking about eight accidents that randomly happen over 30 years over thousands of fishermen. It could just as easily be 16 over that 30 year stretch and it would not be statistically remarkable. It could be fewer as well. But the point is, is that if any one of these does happen, we start talking about much larger costs.
9: An accident involving a loss of a vessel could cost anywhere between $700,000 to $8 million per incident. That's not including loss of income for the fishermen or the cost of human life. Sproul says the number of accidents will depend on how fishermen react once the turbines are actually in the water.
1: These things are complex. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how the vessels are going to respond. We don't know how they're going to reroute. There are supposedly safety channels going to be in between some of the turbine fields. It's not known at this time whether those channels are wide enough to provide meaningful safety.
9: Vineyard Wind says it did its homework early on in the design process. It held over 100 meetings with fishermen or fishing organizations that worked the waters in or around the wind farm area. And it analyzed vessel traffic data to find patterns in how fishermen operate. Here's Eric Stevens, chief development officer for Vineyard Wind.
12: We did have a navigational risk assessment done by a globally renowned company who does these kind of assessments, and including taking into account experience and lessons from the UK or other parts of the world and their determination was that it would allow for safe navigation.
9: The U.S. Coast Guard is evaluating Vineyard Wind's risk assessment and will come out with its own report sometime this fall. Stevens welcomes the scrutiny.
12: It's in our interest as developing this first project to make sure that everything that we've been saying proves to be true, Um, so that when we say things like we're going to really get that cable buried, that it is. Um, that when we say we think it's safe to navigate through there, that the fishermen, you know, a few years after it's built, are like, oh, yeah, it's not that bad, actually.
9: Final permit approval for the Vineyard Wind Project is in the hands of the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. Whatever happens here has the potential to affect not just Vineyard Wind, but the 15 active projects in the works across the Northeast, which is why Farnham says getting it right the first time matters.
10: It terrifies me to picture trying to drive through a forest of thousands of turbines, which is if every state's uh, offshore wind energy mandate comes to fruition, then that's what it will be, several thousand wind turbines offshore um, that we try and work through. And that's a lot of lost fishing ground and a lot of, you know, possibly dangerous interactions.
9: He knows he'll have to get used to working within wind turbines his entire career, but in the end, he may just do his best to avoid them better to be safe than sorry. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nadine Sabai.
3: Just a few miles away, on the island of Nantucket, islanders are dealing with another issue, the high cost of housing. A combination of increased demand for second homes, summer rent hikes, and a housing shortage are putting more middle-class year-round workers in a bind. As Redmond Grabowskis reports, town officials, concerned
12: citizens, and even clergy are trying to get a
3: handle on the issue.
12: Michelle Household and Zach McKay live in a small house tucked down a dirt road. The house has a solar panel array, beehives, and raised bed gardens. Michelle and Zach say their corner of Nantucket is an idyllic place to raise their two children. <laughs> they can't say the same for the two rooms they rent in the
7: house.
2: This is all of our bedroom. All four of us sleep here. This room's probably,
7: oh, I don't know, 12 by 16 or something with a king-size bed. I don't know.
12: The other room is the living room slash dining room slash playroom, and it's also Michelle's studio. They'd like something bigger, but Zach's a carpenter and Michelle's a commercial artist, and they can't afford anything larger on what they make. They pay eight hundred a month for their two rooms plus use of a shared kitchen.
2: It's not far fetched to see a house go for <laughs> a house go for like. You know, eight thousand dollars a month, like a two-bedroom house. Or Go a basement
7: for... apartment with no parking and no kitchen access for like two grand a month. It's like yeah, it's basically just a dark hole.
12: They could leave, but Michelle has found a unique sense of place on the island, and Zach's from here.
7: I was I was born on Nantucket. I've been back since my son was born, raising him, and now my daughter here.
12: They don't know how they're going to accommodate their growing children with so little
7: space. I mean, it works for now, but like you know, eventually she's going to need her own bed, and then like. I don't know how much longer before his feet, like, start sticking out of that corner he lives in.
12: Couples like Michelle and Zach are drawn to Nantucket. They like the scenery, and the community, and the money. There's plenty of well-paying work in the summer months. The island's population swells to three times its size and needs a workforce to match. But once here, people find that even if money grows on trees, houses don't. According to state guidelines, 10% of housing has to be affordable. On Nantucket, that number is 2.7%. For the almost 18,000 year-round residents, that's just not enough. Especially when seasonal workers are competing for those rentals, too. People sometimes resort to renting couches or floor space just to stay inside. Here's Tobias Glidden, a housing activist on the island. He's focused on a different problem. We
1: constantly lose about a third of our properties that go from year-round to seasonal. There's about 2,500 uh, properties that are owned by Nantucketers, so you lose about 60 of those per year. And so that's the, that's the trend
12: of the destruction of the Huron community. And that would mean the destruction of one of the most diverse communities on the Cape and Islands. According to Tobias, 13 languages are spoken on island, and the school district says almost half of its attendees are students of color. We come
1: from a, a history of diversity and respect for for the people who live here. On Wall Street or in Boston, you know people are making millions of dollars a year. There's more economic fitness from the folks coming here than the people who live here to purchase homes. Capitalism is just eating itself and
12: eating its community. Nantucket's median home value is $1.6 million for now. Ever-increasing demand for second homes pushes that number higher each year. And that demand is often a threat to stable, affordable, year-round housing. Michelle and Zach experienced that firsthand in their old house. They lived there for four years, and it was the only home their son knew. Until their landlord got an offer on the property.
2: And their immediate response was to sell it to a developer. I think it was two and a half million. So we were given 30 days notice.
12: Soon after they left, the house was bulldozed.
2: So we go back and it's completely barren, like it's empty. They're working on building one of the three mansions that will be there.
12: On top of that, nine-month leases are common. Landlords stand to make more renting weekly to summer vacationers than they would from a year-round tenant. So what happens when there's not enough housing, it's really expensive, and under constant threat from developers? They've got a name for it here,
7: one that everyone knows.
0: Doing the Nantucket Shuffle. The Nantucket Shuffle. Do the Nantucket Shuffle.
7: You live in a place during the winter, and then for, you know peak season, the people that own the place want to rent it out. They're like, sorry, you're gonna go.
0: That's how I grew up. We moved at least twice to three times every single year.
12: That last voice was Rachel Day. She's the director of human services for the island. Rachel told me it's hard to say how many people are without housing entirely. A lot of times people end up couch surfing until they can find a place to rent.
0: We've had a few people crash, so to speak, at our place for temporary, like a week, a couple days, something like that.
12: There's no homeless shelter, and no one place for people in crisis to go. So it's often up to the community to pick up the slack.
0: Where they kind of bounce around in certain places, but just who can accommodate them without overstaying. Um, and I think a few other people have been forced to find other areas to live in that maybe they would have never done before. So their car, or a boat, or maybe even, I don't know. March twenty fourth,
6: 2018.
12: Colin Letty has that day seared into his memory, the day he became homeless. Colin is from Nantucket and lives here year-round. He's 58, and his only income is a Social Security disability check. That's not adjusted for housing. So last summer, when he had to do the Nantucket Shuffle, there wasn't anything he could afford. Between places and down on his luck, he resorted to sleeping in a weatherized sleeping bag on the ground somewhere in town.
6: Imagine a situation where you're leaving something, And you don't have a friend to go to. You can't just go and sleep on a couch. And you don't have money for a hotel room. The biggest issue actually was the noise. Like between 10 and 2 in the morning, with all the the laughter and the high heels on the pavement and the people leaving the bars, you may be sleep-deprived night after night after night after night. I mean, for weeks at a time.
12: As winter approached, Colin finally found a place to stay. It wasn't much, an unheated attic. Reverend Linda Simmons helped him secure the place.
13: There have surely been people in our community that have found themselves betwixt and between for one reason or another. Nantucket is a very important place for people who have grown up here or lived here for many years. The sense that They couldn't survive anywhere but here, and I mean emotionally. It took me time to understand that.
12: A handful of people like her, Tobias, and Rachel spend their free time helping those with nowhere to go. But what's the town doing about it? There's a recently passed bylaw that allows for garages, sheds, and other standalone dwellings to be rented out. This was already happening, but now the dwellings can be checked for safety and livability. Except the bylaw doesn't limit who can rent these spaces so they tend to be rented out in the summer for a premium, leaving year-round residents still stuck in the shuffle. The town just approved $20 million for affordable housing. That's 250 new units, but there's still no start date for breaking ground. As for Zach and Michelle, they're leaving the island at the end of July. They found a farm in southern Vermont that they say will give their growing kids the space they need.
7: It's like watching the death of a place, you know, that nurtured you as a child. Like, knowing that I could never stay here. Because I could never afford it. It's kind of hard.
12: That change is especially hard for Colin. He's been evicted from his attic. So he's just given me,
6: you know, a days, really, to transition to what? So it's
12: kind of staring into the abyss. He's hoping that with the help of Reverend Simmons and some of the others, that he can find somewhere to go. She has an idea about why people stick it out as long as they do.
13: There's a fierceness. It's not a helplessness, um, but a fierceness almost that they have a right to be here and a right to be housed. And in our um, ecology of living here, I think that when someone is not housed, there is um assumption that there's a flaw in character. The flaw in character belongs to our culture that has not distributed resources. So it's, it's heartbreaking, yeah.
12: True to her word, the Reverend let Colin stay on church grounds for a few weeks while he looked for somewhere else to go.
6: For the past, since May 20th, I have lived on the porch of the parish house at the church without any possessions whatsoever except the clothes on my back, my blood pressure medication, and a few other things in my pockets.
12: Colin was afraid that someone would complain about his presence, so he left every morning before the sun rose and wouldn't come back until after sunset. Here's my bed. It's
6: a wooden bench and it's narrow. Um, I can lie on it. Well, I mean, the sidewalk is, what, 12 feet from here? And the road is maybe 17, 18, I don't know, 20 feet? A busy road.
12: He ended the interview there, afraid his presence would be noticed. The next day, he was asked to leave.
6: On June 6th, I left the church, and I have been outside ever since. I've been using um, a heavy blanket, which uh, is actually is pretty large as well. So I can wrap it around me like a sleeping bag. I mean, the, the worst night I had out was a night in early June. I mean, it rained very, very hard for 16 hours. And the temperature ended up down in the high 40s with a lot of wind, and I got soaked. And
12: that was a bad scene. Colin says he's found shelter in various locations downtown, including beaches and under the awnings of businesses. He's given up looking for housing. He says last year he was sleeping outside until November, and he expects the same this year. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Redmond Grabowskis on Nantucket. That story
3: comes to us from the Transom Story Workshop. Coming up, how New England's industrial legacy lives on in modernized mills and factories. It's next.
2: Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Support also comes from the Melville Charitable Trust.
3: New England is filled with old factory buildings and other remnants of our industrial history. These buildings are a big part of our past, and they also loom over our present. They also present challenges as our cities and towns grow and adapt. So what's the best way to reuse these spaces that contain cultural importance, but sometimes also chemical contamination? How do we balance this desire for adaptive conservation with the need for new civic spaces? Earlier this summer, I led a conversation about these topics at the International Festival of Arts and Ideas in New Haven, Connecticut. And my guests included John Thomas. He's part of a partnership to turn an old gold leaf factory in an economically disadvantaged neighborhood in Hartford into a community center and commissary kitchen. Nico Whedon is executive director of Next Haven. It's an arts-based project in the Dixwell neighborhood of New Haven. Kathy Stanton is a senior lecturer in anthropology at Tufts University. We started the conversation with Elihu Rubin. He's an associate professor of urbanism at the Yale School of Architecture.
14: For so many of us, these these buildings we connect with these buildings. They have value to us. They have a kind of age value that can't be replaced. It can't be fabricated. Uh, there is this authenticity to these buildings. And that is a a buzzword and is supposed to be because as we begin to talk about how they change and who desires them today, associating themselves, whoever the new users might be, with that sense of authenticity, drawing it from the building, uh, is something that Uh, has has pushed a
3: lot of adaptive adaptive reuse. That sense of authenticity, while certainly something that draws us to to these buildings, it also comes at a cost. One of the reasons why mill buildings often lay vacant is because as they deteriorate over time, with each year it becomes more and more expensive to think about how you might remediate that site, how you might clean up the lead paint, how you might fix the roof. A question that you always have to ask is, is, is that cost worth it? Yeah. Yes, it is.
14: Yep. <laughs> it 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 definitely is. But you're raising a key point: is we need to um, we need to be good stewards of these buildings.
3: Um, and we we can't, we can't take that for granted. I, I want to welcome up Kathy Stanton. She's the author of The Lowell Experiment, Public History in a Post-Industrial City. And, and that industrial heritage, it, it, it extends across all of New England, in part because you know, we've been making stuff here for a couple hundred years. And that's the story of Lowell, too.
15: It is, and actually it's not just New England, it's really kind of the North Atlantic, and um, Lowell has been interesting because it's been a model within that whole sort of stretch of Northern Europe, Northern England, the coal belt, the um, the textile belt, as uh, first of all an early industrial city, and then a city that lost its industry relatively early. Textiles have tended to be sort of early in and early out, mm-hmm. um, kind of lost its economic driver, and then turned to culture, what's sometimes called culture-led redevelopment or regeneration uh, in the 1960s, 1970s, um, as sort of cultural production as a way to replace replace and rebrand. Now we'd say rebrand. We weren't talking about that in the the early days. But Lowell kind of, um, it didn't invent it, although a lot of people there will tell you that maybe they did, um, in in the same way that they talk about being the first industrial city in in the U.S. Um, But they have been a model and a really important uh, kind of early adopter of this, this set of strategies.
3: Talk about the economics of that, because it's something that I think whenever I have conversations with people about how to re-engage these spaces, they always say, well, how do you make the money work? How do you make the economics of it work?
15: Sure. So um, early on in Lowell, I think people thought if we just – we. Biff up the mills and we, you know, if we replace the windows and make everything look great and keep the canals clean and tourists will flock and uh, they will spend millions of dollars a year and we'll have hotels downtown and that, that was kind of the initial vision that there would be this very direct economic benefit which has never come to pass and fairly quickly the, the architects of the new Lowell realized that that was not the way you made money out of it and it, and, and simultaneously the, the people who were planning it from the beginning were also talking about um, and then one of the sort of fathers of the National Park. Park there, Lowell National Historical Park, said very explicitly, this is about making Lowell a good address again. And so it really was more about image making, and and, um, and so I, I talk about, you know, kind of Lowell, and especially the role of historians and preservationists in sort of um, framing industry as both interesting and past. Um, and it was that reframing, it, it's the sort of symbolic reframing of the city, and the work of kind of cultural workers within that that has proven to be um, kind of the lost leader that attracts new kinds of industry, new kinds of people, new kinds of investment.
3: Here in New England, we have this particular um, idea that we have to freeze things in a certain time, and then we keep them in that time forever. If it's the town green in whatever town you live in, Mm -hmm. with the White Steeple Church and the the buildings that are perfect, we are going to stick it in colonial times or Victorian times and leave it there forever. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess I just wonder from a preservation standpoint how healthy that is to say, this is, this is the moment in which we're going to fix Lowell or New Haven, mm-hmm. and it never shall change. Yeah.
14: Connecticut's a great place to talk about the colonial revival as one of these movements. And, and the colonial revival did have real reactionary political overtones, uh, many of us believe. And in some places, they are stripping. They're, right. they're stripping to bring it back to the moment of, of cultural significance. And, and I think that's absolutely right. Preservation today is much more interested in layers and
3: in right. celebrating those layers. Hmm. I I want to bring up a few folks who are working on the ground right now in projects that are trying to revive a few of these buildings in very different ways. John Thomas is here. He's Community Engagement Coordinator uh, for Community Solutions, North Hartford Partnership, and we're going to be talking uh, about a very interesting program that he's working on. Also, Nico Wheaton, who's Executive Director of Next Haven. What have you been hearing? And I know that you're you're new to New Haven, but what have you been hearing from people in the city, people in the community about this project? What what they want to bring to it, what they maybe expect from it?
11: Yeah. I guess it depends where the conversation takes place. So if I'm standing right outside the building and people see the kind of construction fence and the trucks going in and out, um, it's mostly people from the neighborhood that have questions about when it opens, if they can come in, what's going on. And so, you know, the founders and myself, our approach has always been, we'll come in and check it out and we'll talk to you about it inside. You know, when people find out that I'm associated with a project, you know, it's either, wow, rough neighborhood, but exciting project mm-hmm. or interesting project. Why, why would you build and develop that in Dixwell? Um, and so, you know, I think there's many answers to that question. But I think, you know, thinking about, again, investment and um, in cultural assets and kind of how history plays its life through these buildings um, and the kind of legacy of black entrepreneurship in Dixwell is amazing. That's how I arrive here from Harlem.
3: I, I want to turn now to, to John Thomas, and, and I'm wondering first, John, if you can talk about the, the history of the building uh, where this project that you're, that you're working on is happening.
5: Yes, so uh, the history of the building is uh, rooted in the narrative of Matthew S- Swift, who was a goldsmith in Hartford in the mid-1800s. And in the late 18- 1800s, uh, Mr. Swift left Gold Street in Hartford where all of the goldsmiths operated and came to North Hartford and established a business in, in his home on the site of uh, where the Swift factory stands now. So uh, the site itself represents the industrial history, architectural history of America from you know the late 1800s all the way up to 1948. They kept adding additions as they expanded.
3: This is a neighborhood which, uh, over the course of the last you know, 125 years, moved from being a neighborhood that was filled with uh, immigrants from, from Europe uh, to being a predominantly African-American neighborhood. And in many cases, when there is a, an industrial facility that has been closed for a long time, the story is, is that when you reclaim it, and do something good with it. Put in anything from artist studios to lofts, you're, you're re-energizing it and the people around that building will will be re-energized for the first time since it closed. But that's not exactly the history here, at least for the African-American community around it. Can you explain a little bit about the, the, the relationship that the Swift factory had with the people who were living right next to it?
5: Yes, so um, for couple of generations, uh, you had people working in the factory, and because it was a, a gold leaf operation, the windows, you, you couldn't see through the windows, so they were obscured, and uh, so I used to live right across the street in my aunt's house there, and we just could not imagine what was going on inside <laughs> that building. Yeah. Uh, everything from... <laughs> We just could. We just wild imagination about what's going you on. You tell some stories, building. I'm sure. Like, yes. what goes on in there? Yeah. And and you know, it's not that African Americans didn't have access to jobs there. You know, in the mid '60s, during the great, you know, the late migration from the South, uh, late part of the Great Migration, African Americans were getting jobs there. Um, we've interviewed quite a few people who worked there, but in the you know mid. 80s to 2005 when it closed um, no one from the community was working in that in that factory so there wasn't a connection to the economic engine of, of that factory uh, amongst residents in the community and so there was a, dis, a dislocation, uh dislocation from the factory's narrative to that of the neighborhood
15: but also the histories of gentrification. Like we, we have enough of a track record now, and when we see that these kinds of places get redeveloped, that they that's the end that usually happens. So that you're, you're doing that with an eye. You've got your eyes open about that, and that seems to be a, a really interesting kind of use of that continuous history that goes right up to the present.
5: Yeah. And that that has, that has been my biggest obstacle since I came here because mm-hmm. I've lived in this neighborhood all my life, and uh, I've have a really strong presence in the neighborhood. And people were asking me, why well, are you working with those white people to gentrify this neighborhood? And then when I learned about the different forms of gentrification, you know, and, and the model that I have on the project is this is development without displacement.
3: That's John Thomas, Kathy Stanton, Nico Whedon, and Elihu Rubin talking with me on stage at the International Festival of Arts and Ideas in New Haven earlier this summer. This special next event was in conjunction with the Cities Project, a collaboration between news outlets in Connecticut to chart our changing cities. For more stories about that project and to watch a video of our entire conversation, go to nextnewengland.org. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England, and if you like what you hear, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Our program is produced by Carlos Mejia and Katie Tolarski and our music this week is from Todd Merrill and Goodnight Blue Moon. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and The Publics Radio.